no evidence of any collusion with any Russian This is America. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, thanks. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountain, California on KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM950 KTNF, we also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, a series of tubes, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, an all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. It may be difficult to notice these days with everything else that is going on, but in Congress, Democrats are beginning to put together a very real and progressive agenda, not just to run on in 2020, but to hopefully actually execute thereafter. Last week, they passed a massive elections and ethics reform bill known as H.R. 1 or the For the People Act in the uh, in the House. You've already heard about the Green New Deal, which is already yielding positive results from, yes, Republicans, believe it or not, as I hope to discuss a little bit later today, if time. And last week, with much less fanfare, Democrats introduced a measure that would both help to curb volatility in the stock market, along with the computerized skimming of billions of dollars from regular investors by high volume Wall Street traders, and it would bring in hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue for the U.S. government as a progressive tax on the wealthy on Wall Street that could be used then for any number of progressive priorities. The measure was introduced by Democratic Senator Brian Schatz in the Senate and Congressman Pete DeFazio in the U.S. House and already has a bunch of Democratic co-sponsors in both chambers, including a number of presidential hopefuls. We will discuss that proposal for a teeny tiny financial transaction tax uh, on every trade in the stock market 
Uh, we'll be joined by Susan Harley of Public Citizen to discuss that shortly. But first, a number of important news items today outside of Congress, beginning with some very good news out here in California. Uh, the 737 inmates, 737 uh, on the nation's largest death row, got a reprieve today from newly elected California Governor Gavin Newsom when he signed an executive order placing a moratorium on all executions in the state. Newsom also withdrew the lethal injection regulations that death penalty opponents already have tied up in courts and moved to shutter the uh, new execution chamber that was built at the uh, at San Quentin State Prison, but has never been used. Newsom correctly called the death penalty a failure that has, quote, discriminated against defendants who are mentally ill, black and brown or can't afford expensive legal representation. Noting that innocent people have been wrongly convicted and, yes, put to death anyway. California hasn't executed anyone since 2006, uh, back when Republican Ar Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. Remember that, Desi Doyle? Oh, yes, I do. Hi, Des. Hey. Uh, since California's last execution, its death row population has grown to house one of every four condemned inmates in the U.S., so Gavin Newsom has just uh, signed a reprieve for one out of every four condemned inmates in the country. U.S. Senator Kamala Harris, uh, who is uh, seeking the Democratic presidential nomination, she applauded the decision today, saying, as a career law enforcement official, I have opposed the death penalty because it is immoral, discriminatory, ineffective, and a gross misuse of taxpayer dollars. Other governors have also enacted moratoriums over the years. Republican Illinois uh, Governor George Ryan was the first to do so back in 2000. He was later uh, followed in uh, Pennsylvania, in Washington and Oregon. Illinois ultimately outlawed all executions, as did Washington state. More than six in 10 condemned California inmates are minorities, which Newsom's office cited as proof of racial disparities in who is sentenced to die and who is not. Since 1973, five California inmates who were sentenced to death were later exonerated, according to Newsom's office. Seventy-nine condemned California inmates have died of natural causes since the State reinstated capital punishment back in 1978, so they languished on death row, 79 of them, longer uh, as the appeals process played out uh, and just died there before they could be killed by the state, murdered by the state. Another 26 of those inmates committed suicide during their time on death row. California has executed uh, just 13 inmates, while two were executed in other states, all since 1978. Newsom's office said 25 condemned inmates have exhausted all of their appeals at this time and could have faced execution if the courts approved the state's new lethal injection. In his press conference at the state capitol on Wednesday, Newsom announced the executive order under his authority as governor. 
stating that he had deeply thought about the uneven application of the death penalty over his many decades in public office, meeting with victims' families and criminal justice experts. He said no one on death row would be released from custody and noted that the enormous uh, noted the enormous cost to taxpayers of California having the most people on death row in the entire Western Hemisphere, 737 of them. Newsom noted that 164 innocent people have been exonerated and released from death row in the U.S. since 1978 and cited experts estimates that fully one quarter of death row inmates are actually innocent, one quarter of them. And that that, along with the deep racial and economic disparities in the criminal justice system, are primary reasons for enacting this landmark moratorium. I've heard from experts that have laid claim to what I think is a, a fair uh, assessment of our criminal justice system, that it's a lot better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. The backstop for an execution for taking of another life is the governor of the state of California. And with respect to everyone here, when I was standing on this side and I wasn't standing here, it was an intellectual conversation. It's a very emotional place that I stand in. We're going to get to the cost issue. It's why we need to end the death penalty in California. That's why the people of the state of California, I hope, will end the death penalty to end the cost burdens. Though this to me is not just about cost, $5 billion is not insignificant. By the way, $5 billion could have bought you a lot of justice for murder victims that didn't have their murders investigated. $5 billion could have bought a lot of justice to people that had inadequate uh, representation at the time of adjudication. $5 billion could have bought a lot of justice in training on implicit and overt bias. $5 billion could have bought a lot of training to right the wrongs of a criminal justice system that is skewed against black and brown people. I cannot sign off on executing hundreds and hundreds of human beings, knowing, knowing that among them will be innocent human beings. I respect anybody's difference of opinion. It's not an abstract question any longer. This question is real. This question now is being presented to me, not as an abstract question, but as a question that goes deep to who I am and what I believe, and I believe the death penalty is wrong, and I'm exercising my right pursuant to the voters, the will of voters in the Constitution to do that right. Good for him. California Governor Gavin Newsom announcing uh, the moratorium uh, that he just signed on the death penalty, finally, in the great state of California. Uh, this action, uh, as I see it, is long overdue it, and may or may not be politically popular in the state. But you know what? Uh, Newsom has a long, well-earned reputation of doing what is right, whether it's politically popular at the time or not. Uh, only then to see the action um, for what is right becoming politically popular years later. Many may have forgotten, but I never will. When, as mayor of San Francisco, way back in 2004, Newsom said that uh, he read the U.S. Constitution, he read the California Constitution, and he determined that there was nothing to prevent same-sex couples from becoming married, and he actually started marrying them himself right there on the court, uh, on the uh, on right the, out on the there steps in the public of, square, of yes. City Hall. Yeah, 
That was not particularly popular at the time, and many Democrats were actually mad at him for doing it, blaming him, uh, some of them did, for the pushback against marriage equality that occurred across the country in the uh, 2004 election. Many uh, saw that as the reason George W. Bush won re-election over John Kerry that year. Personally, I see the likelihood of insider election fraud and voter suppression in the state of Ohio as at least as plausible an explanation for George W. Bush's reported win. Uh, But it was not popular back then. Nonetheless, Newsom was right then. and, uh, and, And today, of course, marriage equality is the law of the land. He was proven right. And I'll I hope that in a number of years, the notion that the government, the federal government or any of its states may murder its own citizens under the false and inhumane premise of justice, that that will also be seen by the majority of Americans uh, for the abhorrent and shameful act that it actually is. So good for Newsom doing the right thing there uh, once again, as far as I see it. Indeed. Well, I, I agree with him. I've always agreed about that on the death penalty. So I am very glad to see finally that somebody is stepping up, at least in California, to take care of it. In other news of national note today, a federal judge in Washington, D.C., sentenced former Donald Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort to spend an additional 43 months in prison after a 47-month sentence in his separate Virginia case as part of the uh, unregistered foreign lobbying and money laundering case uh, brought by special counsel Robert Mueller. So uh, U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson technically sentenced Manafort to a total of 60 months for conspiracy, uh, for one conspiracy count, and 13 months for a witness tampering charge. She said that 30 months of the conspiracy count, however, would um, would run concurrently with the 47-month sentence that Manafort received in the separate case in Virginia, which was also brought as part of Mueller's probe. The remainder of the conspiracy sentence and the witness tampering sentence were then tacked on to the end of the Virginia sentence. So in all, with Manafort getting credit for nine months of time that he has already served, it means he will now face 81 months or nearly seven more years in federal prison. He had faced a maximum sentence of 10 years for the crimes that he pleaded guilty to in the D.C. case. Judge Berman Jackson's sentence comes just one week after the judge in Virginia surprised that would be a Judge T.S. Ellis. Uh, he surprised observers with his relatively light sentence for Manafort's conviction there, where the probation office had recommended Manafort received 19 to 24 years, but the Ronald Reagan appointed judge gave him less than four years, significantly below the sentencing guidelines. Uh, Ellis claimed that that was in order to avoid disparities between Manafort and others who were sentenced to only months in prison for similar crimes. In announcing her sentence on uh, Wednesday, Judge Berman Jackson said that Manafort was, quote, not public enemy number one, but he's not a victim either. She spent the bulk of her remarks bashing the claims that the defense made, calling some of them disingenuous, not persuasive and reflective of Manafort's lack of candor. 
Manafort had pleaded guilty to conspiracy against the U.S. and to witness tampering in the D.C. case as part of a cooperation deal which later imploded over allegations that Manafort lied to investigators even as he was pretending to be cooperating with them. Judge Berman Jackson uh, said at the sentencing on Wednesday, it is hard to overstate the number of lies and the amount of fraud and the extraordinary amount of money involved in the federal conspiracy charges related to Manafort's foreign lobbying work and witness tampering. Court, she said, is one of those places that facts still matter. Uh, Judge Berman Jackson, by the way, was appointed by Barack Obama. Uh, at Wednesday's hearing, Manafort uh, made remarks that were much more apologetic than the ones that he gave at his sentencing last week. He said, I'm sorry for what I have done. He said he was remorseful for his mistakes, which he did not say last week. Those uh, mistakes uh, that he carried out over the last 10 years or so of his life, by the way, and then repeatedly lied about them and then continued to lie about them after being found guilty in a court of law, pleading guilty to several other crimes while agreeing to cooperate with federal investigators and lying them and then lying to them about those crimes even while attempting to tamper with the testimony of other witnesses. Neither Manafort's D.C. case nor the Virginia case, um, which focused on financial crimes, neither of them alleged collusion with the Russian government to influence the 2016 election. Nonetheless, Wednesday's sentencing highlights uh, Donald Trump's tendency to surround himself with people who later plead guilty or are convicted of various crimes. Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohn, will begin uh, in May serving his three-year sentence for crimes uh, that included conduct related to Trump, in fact, directed by Trump. The uh, president's ex-national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and Trump's campaign deputy chair, uh, Rick Gates, a Manafort protege and former co-defendant in uh, Manafort's case, they though they both pled guilty in the uh, Mueller probe and they became cooperating witnesses. The charges Manafort faced in D.C., however, related to consulting work that he and Gates did in Ukraine for a pro-Russian political party, but like the charges in Virginia, did not include charges of conspiracy or collusion with Russians to affect the 2016 election. That did not prevent Manafort's uh, attorney, however, Kevin Downey, from falsely suggesting otherwise after last week's sentencing. And he tried falsely to do so again today outside the courtroom, in my opinion, in hopes of appealing to Trump for a presidential pardon. The statement by Downey, however, this time did not go over as well as the one that he made last week as the public in attendance outside the courtroom had a word or two in response to Downey's statement. Judge Jackson uh, conceded that there was absolutely no evidence of any Russian collusion in this case. So that makes two courts, two courts have ruled no evidence of any collusion with any Russian. That's not what Part she said. Two. Very sad. That's not what she said. Very sad. That's not what she said. For such a callous, liar sentence that is totally unnecessary. Much like this. You guys are liars, man. You're not lawyers. You're liars. Man, I do love democracy. Uh, yeah, and that's really remarkable because the judge explicitly said from the bench, we have not adjudicated anything regarding Russian collusion.
He just yeah. flat out lied. Yeah. Oh, of course. That's what we do now here, apparently, in these United States, uh, even though court is one of those places that facts still matter, as the judge said. But apparently outside of court, that doesn't matter. Now, whether or not uh, there, a presidential pardon is actually offered to Manafort for the more than 20 federal counts in two separate cases for which the president's former campaign manager has now been found guilty and sentenced to some seven years in federal prison, uh, that pardon, were it to come, as many might be right to expect here, may not ultimately do Manafort much good. Minutes, just minutes after the sentencing in uh, in D.C., Manafort was charged in New York State with mortgage fraud and more than a dozen other federal uh, um, another dozen state felonies by uh, the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus R. Vance Jr. This is uh, an effort to ensure that he will still face prison time, even if Trump pardons him for his federal crimes. Of course, Trump has broad power to issue pardons for federal crimes, but no such authority in state cases. So even if Trump pardons Manafort for all of these cases in federal court, he's still going to face 16 counts in New York state. Trump has not said that he intends to pardon his former campaign chair, but he has often spoken about his power to pardon and has defended Manafort on a number of occasions, calling him a brave man. The president said uh, today, I feel very badly for Paul Manafort, and he claims he had not thought about whether he would pardon him or not. The new state charges against Manafort are contained in a 16-count indictment that alleges a year-long scheme in which he falsified business records to obtain millions of dollars in loans. Uh, District Attorney Vance said no one is beyond the law in New York, adding that the investigation by the prosecutors in his office had, quote, yielded serious criminal charges for which the defendant has not yet been held accountable. That uh, after a grand jury last week hearing evidence in the case voted to charge Paul Manafort with residential mortgage fraud, conspiracy, falsifying business records and other charges. And then as accountability continues, for at least some of those involved in Donald Trump's crime ring, uh, Democrats back in Congress are looking ahead for how we climb out of this morass that our nation has placed itself into. Uh, let's take a quick break and come back with a new piece of legislation introduced in Congress last week that may help, at least in one small but critical way, may help to rebalance the scales of inequity between the rich and the poor in this country. That's next on the broadcast with Susan Harley of Public Citizen. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Oh, 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 o
Beyonce? Yeah. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, internet bots immediately snapped up Beyonce's presale tickets last year, and when the resale price of those tickets then rose above $1,000, Beyonce fans were mighty peeved. Ticket scalpers are indeed frustrating, notes Sarah Anderson of Inequality.org, but their Wall Street cousins, what UMass Amherst professor Douglas Cliggett calls the stock scalpers, are far more dangerous. Like online ticket scalpers, Anderson writes, these financial predators are uh, they use advanced technology to cheat the rest of us. For huge sums, they buy the privilege of locating their computer servers as close as possible to financial market exchanges. This allows them to get trading information a split second faster than traditional investors. That would be, you know, people like you and me. So when a mutual or pension fund makes a trade, the stock scalpers see that trade on its way to the market and according to Cliggett, they hop in front of it, buy it, and bid it up, bid up whatever we want to buy and sell, and they sell it back to us at a higher price. Cliggett is a former J.P. Morgan Chase managing director. In fact, this is sort of a tax on financial transactions, as some economists describe it. But it's a tax that the stock scalpers profit off of, and we, the American people, do not. The scalpers, writes Anderson, do this thousands of times a day using computers programmed with algorithm, algorithms that have no connection to the real economy. This high-frequency trading makes up the majority of today's market activity, believe it or not. Many financial experts, including a former Consumer Financial Trade Commission chief economist, have warned that high-speed trading siphons profits from traditional investors. For the, min for the minority of U.S. workers who have any money at all in a retirement fund, that's a bigger problem than, you know, missing out on a Beyonce ticket. Even more disturbing is the risk the high-speed traders pose for the global financial system. John Fullerton, another former J.P. Morgan managing director, points out that high-frequency traders vanish from the market in a flash in a time of crisis. Yes, those so-called flash crashes that you may have heard about. The high-volume traders pull out, they save their money, and normal investors are left losing money, sometimes a lot of it. Jean-Philippe Sabera, a financial markets expert at Sheffield Hallam University, argues the worry is that flash crashes are more likely to get out of hand, possibly causing contagion around the world as more and more of these high volume traders take advantage. But as uh, Anderson argues at inequality.org, there's an easy solution to these problems. Tax the stock scalpers. As importantly for many, a small tax on financial transactions while calming market volatility could also bring a lot of much-needed revenue for U.S. coffers. As Democrats have taken back a majority in the U.S. House and as the 2020 Democratic presidential primary is heating up, we have been discussing a number of new progressive policies being proposed in Congress and on the campaign trail. Among them, of course, the Green New Deal, which, while it wouldn't cost the U.S. economy the $100 trillion 
that Donald Trump and other Republicans are uh, claiming by largely pulling that out of their rear end to scare people about it, it would require a lot of money to get started. So would other progressive proposals, such as Medicare for All. In the 2016 campaign, Bernie Sanders called for a financial transaction tax, or FTT, to fund his free college tuition proposal. Now, Democrats in the Senate and the House have finally introduced such a measure, a financial transaction tax, which they say could raise as much as $800 billion over the next 10 years. Given that Donald Trump's proposed fiscal 2020 budget locks in trillion-dollar annual deficits for the foreseeable future, while slashing hundreds of billions of dollars from programs like Medicare and Medicaid that he vowed to support as a candidate, and given that we never seem to have any problem finding money for wars and things like Trump's proposed record increase in defense spending for the next year, and given that Republicans apparently weren't concerned much by higher deficits and increased debt when they passed a one and a half trillion dollar tax cut, those cuts have only exacerbated the national debt that they used to pretend to care about. But only when it uh, when it gave them the chance to call for slashing social programs, given all of that, why not a tiny tax that would both calm market volatility save money for small investors and increase revenue to the U.S. government. Even a tiny levy on each trade of stocks, bonds and derivatives would deliver a heavy blow to high frequency traders, says Anderson, which uh, they make huge profits. But for ordinary investors whose portfolios have lower turnover rates, the cost would be negligible, like a tiny insurance fee against future crises. Last week, Hawaii's Democratic Senator Brian Schatz introduced legislation proposing a financial transaction tax in the Senate, with Congressman Pete DeFazio of Oregon sponsoring a matching version in the U.S. House. The ideal entails uh, enacting a small tax on stock market sales. The Hawaii Democrat claims the proposal would raise nearly $800 billion for the federal government over the course of a decade, but as importantly, would clamp down on speculation and other nefarious behaviors in the market. Senators Chris Van Holland of Maryland, Jeff Merkley of Oregon, and Kirsten Gillibrand of New York are all now co-sponsors of that Senate bill. Schatz told Vox.com that roughly half of the 8 billion daily trades now are high-frequency trades, and that is increasing volatility in the market, allowing a certain category of traders to essentially skim profits off the top. And on a more basic level, he says, it's turning the stock market into a true casino in which you are making a bet that has very little to do with the fundamentals of a company. That's true. Remember when investing in the stock market used to be based on whether you you thought a company was a, a worthy investment versus just a good bet as if you were in Vegas playing roulette? In the wake of the 2017 Republican tax bill, which cut taxes for most Americans but overwhelmingly benefited corporations and the wealthy, a tax that would move in the other direction is an attractive idea, at least to progressives, according to Vox. Schatz told them in an interview last week that the government has a revenue problem, and as near as I can tell, this is among the most popular ideas to generate significant revenue. 
Schatz's bill would tax the sale of stocks, bonds, and derivatives at a 0.1% rate. That's, if my math is right, that's one-tenth of a penny on every dollar, or $1 for every 1000 spent on buying an asset on the market. That small 0.1% tax would be applied to any transaction that takes place in the U.S. or that a person in the U.S. actually makes. Schott says high-frequency trading is a real risk to the system, and it screws regular people. That's the main reason to do this, he says, adding, if in the process of solving that problem we happen to generate revenue for public services, that's an important benefit. The nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation has scored uh, this particular tax as creating nearly $770 billion in revenue over 10 years. And the nonpartisan good government advocacy group, Public Citizen, is joining some 60 other organizations in endorsing this legislation. Lisa Gilbert, the group's vice president of legislative affairs, argues that it's time for all members of Congress to join the call to rebuild Main Street on Wall Street's dime. Susan Harley, deputy director of Public Citizens Congress Watch, says the question shouldn't be whether to tax Wall Street the question shouldn't be whether to tax Wall Street trades but when? We think the time is now, she says. Of course, now the Republicans are in charge of the U.S. Senate, and I'm guessing they may not be in favor of any increased taxes, particularly a progressive one that will largely be paid by wealthy investment institutions. Joining us now for more on this, uh, what I think is a very good idea, is Public Citizen's Susan Harley. She is, as I say, the deputy director for Public Citizen's Congress Watch Division, where she helps helps coordinate all aspects of their advocacy across multiple issues, including financial reform, international tax issues, and open government initiatives. Susan Harley, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks. Pleasure to be here, Brad. Uh, really appreciate it. Is there currently any financial transaction tax or, or FTT on the, on the type of uh, market transactions that we're talking about here? So here in the United States, we have an extraordinarily tiny fee, about $13 out of every million dollar traded um, on certain um, types of transactions, and that goes to fund the Securities and Exchange Commission. So we do already have this. It's just on a much a smaller scale here in the United States. And then these sorts of taxes exist in other countries. In fact, the uh, stamp duty in the United Kingdom has been in place for hundreds of years, and that's uh, tax that's charged every time a stock is sold, and so they have to actually get it stamped. That's why it's called the stamp duty, and mm -hmm. again, that's, that's been around for hundreds of years. So these uh, have definitely been tested out in the world, and we, in fact, had one here in the United States back from 1914 until 1966. So um, definitely we have experience here in the United States. Well, any idea why we got rid of it in 1966? And the reason I'm asking is because as I've been uh, researching this issue and, you know, the thing that keeps recurring in my head is, you know, every time I have to go, you know, buy pretty much anything anywhere, I'm I'm charged sales tax on it. Why why is there not just a, a regular old sales tax, which in fact would be much higher than one-tenth of a penny, why is there not just a regular sales tax on uh, financial tra transactions of this, of this sort? 
That's that's the question that we're asking, and it's a basic tenant of fairness is, mm-hmm. you know, we do pay taxes on all of our purchases, and so Wall Street should be doing the same as far as, um, you know, these stock trades, bond trades, and derivative trades. And so it absolutely is, is about fairness, about making sure that Wall Street um, is paying back the U.S. because we did bail them out for the financial crash, and oh, so yeah. there's still a lot of anger out there and a need uh, to recompensate the U.S. public. And so uh, that's, that's part of this, absolutely. So why did the tax go away in 1966? Well, we w- wrote a report on that, and it was one of dozens of other taxes that were kind of all scooped up together in this you know, decision to get rid of a bunch of excise taxes. So it wasn't as if this one was singled out in particular. Um, it was part of a, a you know, large package of other taxes that were repealed at that time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we think it's the time to bring it back. And I think, you know, as, in your introduction, you mentioned a lot of the reasons, partly the volatility, the costs on uh, investors from the stock scalping, we also have, as you mentioned, the the large hole in our budget that Trump and the Republicans put in place by giving their corporate tax giveaway. So there's a lot of reason to be talking about this now. I think the other part that is really bubbling up here is just the runaway economic inequality. It is something that Americans are feeling. It's much harder for people to get affordable access to health care. Drug prices are astronomically skyrocketing mm-hmm. we have you know people who are you know making decisions about whether or not to get health care or f- put food on their table and these are just not the sorts of decisions that we should be forcing people into in a wealthy nation and so we've really got to rebalance our tax code and unrigging our economy starts with making Wall Street pay its fair share. And uh, this is not, uh, in and of itself, it's not a progressive tax in that uh, everybody essentially would pay the same rate, but uh, it seems to be uh, regarded as a uh, a, a progressive taxation. I was reading Jared Bernstein, uh, uh, Senator, uh, I'm sorry, Vice President, uh, Joe Biden's old uh, financial guy who calls this a progressive tax essentially because it would mostly be paid for by the wealthy, uh, by wealthy investors who have most of the money in the stock market and in these transactions. Is, is that how public citizen sees it as well? Well, absolutely. So, you know, the stat that a lot of people talk about is that the top 1% of society owns two-thirds of all financial securities. And so as you're looking at how this tax would be distributed, a group called the Tax Policy Center used their modeling, and they determined that 75% of the tax would be paid by the top 20% of society, and that the top 1% would actually pay 40% of the Wall Street mm. Tax Act. So absolutely progressive just in the in the way that financial securities are currently held. Now, opponents say, uh, among other things, that the tax is going to, uh, that, that this tax, and again, we're talking about, uh, my numbers are right, right? It's one-tenth of one cent per dollar, essentially? Am yeah, I right about cents, that? Yep, 10 cents at, uh, out of every $100 traded. Okay. So you got it completely right. That's why we like to talk about it as rebuilding Main Street on Wall Street's dime because that 10 cents out of every $100 ah. traded. So, yeah, very, very small. Okay. Um, and, you know, we did some research on existing 
fees, mm -hmm. things like commission, overhead costs, broker fees, all of that in a report we did several years ago. It was based on a different version of legislation, but if you do some sort of back-of-the-envelope calculations, uh, the FTT, the financial transaction tax, which mm -hmm. some people um, shortened to FTT, mm -hmm. that Wall Street tax would be only about $80 for the average 401k or retirement saver mm -hmm. versus more than $1,000 in existing fees. That's just the average. Mm -hmm. Some funds have existing fees of more than $2,500. So it really is a drop in the bucket as compared to the existing basically commissions and other types of, you know, ways that Wall Street has taken it out of the pocket of average investors. Yeah, yeah, and I, th I think they charge, and I don't uh, invest a lot in the stock market, so I don't know, but I think it's like, you know, $5 a trade if, at, at Charles Schwab. Nobody seems to complain about that, and yet opponents are saying that this tax would somehow distort the market, this tiny tax that people, or more likely high-volume traders here, might not buy or sell as often as they otherwise might because of the tax that they would have to to pay, this would somehow distort the otherwise so-called free market, and because we won't have as much volume in the market, the market won't generate as much money for the economy, and also less U.S. government revenue than uh, than proponents say. Your response to that? I would say that the Joint Committee on Taxation did really extensive modeling on this as they came up with that score of $777 billion over 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, after the, the provision has been in place for several years, that amount is actually bumped up to about $100 billion per year. There's a ton that we could be investing in American communities um, with those sorts of funds. So, you know, starting from there, I think we do need to, you know, talk about reinvesting in American communities, and that should be where we start the conversation. Now, uh, of course, my reaction when I hear this is, uh, you know, really? Only one-tenth of a penny? Uh, I mean, if that gets us almost $800 billion which is more than we spend, by the way, in Medicaid alone each year, why not two-tenths of a penny? Uh, is that what scares opponents that, uh, you know, once that, you know, we get this FTT foot in the door, so to speak, that we'll, you know, that Democrats, Americans, if you will, will want to uh, raise that and get more and more money out of here? Of course, I say, yeah, sounds like a good idea, but is that what uh, scares the opponents most, or, or can we just Assume that uh, Wall Street and and their backers, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are just against any tax on anything and won't support uh, won't support it on that basis alone. Even while many of them complain about debt and deficit, et cetera. So. I think you're absolutely right that opponents know that once this is in place, people will see that's a good idea and that you can turn up the dial mm -hmm. and have this tax be increased. Uh, but the other thing they're probably afraid of is that, that this is actually a tax that's paid by brokers and exchanges. It's just assumed that they will pass the cost along to investors. And so mm -hmm. it's very possible that investors will push back and say, no, um, why don't you just reduce your commissions as a way to make up for this? And so we could be just talking about not lining their pockets as much as they'd like to um, have them be lined. And Wall Street has been very effective at uh, getting larger and larger profits 
for themselves. So I think, you know, the threat to their profit margin is absolutely the reason that they're opposing this bill. And and you know, most of the opposition is directly from people who are um, standing to have less profit once this provision is in place. But how is that translating then into uh, into Congress? Do we see the usual split where you have Republicans are against it, Democrats are in favor of it, or are we seeing uh, that there are uh, a lot of Democrats who also uh, you know get a lot of support from Wall Street and so forth uh, that may also be opposing this? How is this breaking down in Congress? On, on, on the political level. So we haven't yet got a Republican to co-sponsor this legislation. We're so working very hard in that, and I'm sure that the more the public hears about this and are able to weigh in with their lawmakers, the more likely it is to happen. Uh, we have seen some very uh, centrist Democrats, particularly from states like New York, who are starting to come out in opposition to the bill. But uh, we also have, you know, really important lawmakers on the other side, also from New York, who are in support of the legislation. So I, I would say that, um, you know, how this falls along party lines has yet to be determined. But Definitely, you mentioned at the beginning Senator Sanders' support for this legislation. I should note that he has had a bill for a number of years called the Inclusive Prosperity Act, mm-hmm. and that has a higher tax on stocks. It's the same on bonds, lower on derivatives. Uh, they value derivatives uh, slightly differently. But mm-hmm. that that tax, um, it's uh, 50 basis points or 0.5%, so that uh, that legislation has been out there. We expect that to be reintroduced as well. So that has, you know, served as the very populist, the uh, most liberal version of the legislation previously. So this legislation introduced by uh, Senator Schatz and Representative DeFazio, it's a brand new version of legislation. So we're excited to really grow the support for this legislation while also having people support the other versions of the legislation that's out there. And it's even- even uh, more conservative than Sanders' proposal, which uh, is that the one that he was talking about that would that would be used to help cover f- uh, free college tuition at, at public universities and so forth? That's the Free College for All Act. This mm-hmm. is a separate bill called the Inclusive Prosperity Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, in previous Congresses, they tied the funding for Free College Act to a tax on Wall Street trade. So he has very much discussed the two together. Uh, there was uh, one other uh, uh, sort of opposition to this that I wanted to ask you about that I think Schatz has uh, tried to work around in his proposal. Uh, Vox uh, notes that, uh, for example, Sweden in the 1980s introduced a financial transaction tax and it had a major detrimental effect on the market. Apparently, trade volume plummeted. Um, uh, Tax Foundation economist Kyle Pomerleau explained that it had an obvious mass loophole, which was that Swedish traders could migrate to the London Stock Exchange in order to avoid the tax, which they did until the tax was eventually abolished. Is there any danger that that could happen, that, uh, uh, you know, folks in the U.S. could simply go to a different market where they don't have to uh, pay this particular tax? Is that, that a legit concern? concern? That concern was something that the drafters really took to heart. And so the way that they uh, drafted to address that problem is that 
Um, the tax applies to any transaction that occurs either in the United States or is made by a U.S. person. Mm. And so even if a U.S. person, and that definition includes a, a controlled foreign corporation mm. and its shareholders, if, if those entities are trying to trade outside of the U.S., but they're still a U.S. person, the tax uh, would still apply to them. And so, um, you know, there's still some possibility, just as, you know, corporations are extremely good at tax avoidance now, that, you know, they might try to find a loophole and incorporate it in another, um, you know, tax haven and Mm -hmm. make a shell company or something like that. But, you know, the rules and regulations that will be written around this provision will also uh, make sure to address that problem as well. Fascinating. Uh, Susan Harley, this this, uh, bill, this legislation, obviously, I think, unless you wish to correct me, I think it's largely aspirational for now, uh, sort of waiting on a, a Democratic Senate and a Democratic White House before this could actually move forward, like so much else that we're seeing uh, coming from the Democratic side in advance of uh, in advance of 2020. Am I correct that this is something that uh, we'll see Democrats likely running on, or is this legislation that actually could somehow pass uh, in this Republican-controlled Senate with a Republican in the White House? I think you're right that for now it feels aspirational. However, there are huge funding needs. I'm going to mention both infrastructure and deficit reduction Mm -hmm. that do have a ton of support on the Republican side. And as, you know, people are looking at ways to, say, pay for infrastructure investments, there is a lot of... um, push back to the idea of, of raising the gas tax. And so, you know, these potholes are not going to fill themselves. And mm-hmm. so um, there needs to be some sort of funding identified. So it really depends on how great the push is to get some of this stuff done. And it will mean finding revenues from somewhere. And I think um, the fact that this is so narrowly targeted at those who are trading Wall Street um, stocks, bonds, and derivatives, it, it really makes sense for them to focus on a smaller section of society versus, you know, kind of going broader in a tax, which is um, likely to, to net more opposition. That being said, we're absolutely going to see people running on this. You mentioned Gillibrand's support for this, mm-hmm. Senator Sanders' support for this. I think we'll see more people, um, you know, joining on these these various bills, and it will absolutely be part of the discussion. You know, we're hearing people talk about wealth tax. We're hearing people talk about tightening the estate tax. This is going to be part of the mix, absolutely. Uh, and when you talk about uh, infrastructure and literally filling the potholes, uh, it, it, it really does uh, ring true when you describe it as rebuilding Main Street on Wall Street's dime. That does make a lot of sense. Uh, Susan Harley, Deputy Director for Public Citizens Congress Watch, uh, really appreciate you joining us, helping us to understand this. And, uh, well, I hope you'll uh, stay in touch as this moves forward because... Uh, it's nice to talk about something that could be positive uh, for a fresh change. So thanks, Susan. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Brad. And uh, I just hope all of your listeners go ahead and call their lawmakers and tell them to support the Wall Street Tax Act. We uh, need to absolutely have more people talking about this. So thanks so much for having me on. You bet. You can get more information at citizen.org. You should be following Public Citizen on the Twitters at 
citizen. And of course, follow Susie. You can send your complaints there on the Twitter. She is Susan underscore Harley. Thanks again, Susan. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Okay, a quick break and uh, some other Democratic legislation that uh, has not even held a vote yet, but is already having a positive effect. That would be the Green New Deal. I'll explain why right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's not easy being green. It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. Haven't heard that one in a while. <laughs> Ten people Welcome back to, to the Bradcast. It's Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, so Desi Doyen, uh, they introduced the Green New Deal. Uh, who was it? Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and yes. Ed Markey just a few weeks ago. The right wing absolutely freaked out about it. Oh, they've lost their minds. Lost their minds. But it has forced them to realize, well, you know what? We better come up with something to, to deal with climate change because the elements of the Green New Deal have been found to be wildly popular, like 80 percent or more popular across all political parties. So we've been talking about in the past few weeks how Republicans are now trying to figure out how to deal with climate change in a way that their benefactors, their funders will put up with will somehow tolerate while the voters won't throw them out of office or something. Even Matt Gates, the Republican from Florida, far-right, Trump-loving guy, one of his top wingnut protectors in Congress, who literally threatened Michael Cohen on Twitter the night before uh, his House testimony. That guy. That guy. Um, and he had to remove the tweet and apologize because it was so offensive. Uh, on uh, on Twitter last night, Matt Gates offered a two sentence tweet: "Climate change is real. Humans contribute." What? I know that's what I thought that's as well. Crazy. Now um, that he would say that after know, all these years, I know. Even though he's from Florida, you'd think he should have said that years ago. But well. okay, so now he's saying climate change is real. Humans contribute. That's a big deal. Now, Michael Mann, a climate scientist who we've had on this show uh, many times over the years, replied to say that's a good start, Matt Gates, but you left off all of it as far as how much humans contribute. You left all of it off the end of that second sentence, he said, uh, and he goes on to show uh, some actual you know, facts, evidence and stuff showing that, in fact, uh, 100% of the observed warming right now is due to human activity. I also retweeted it and said, oh, look, baby steps and uh, cited Michael Mann's explanation there, telling Gates that if he bothers to talk to actual scientists, Humans don't just contribute. They are actually responsible for all of it. But that I was glad he's uh, they, these guys are coming around 
And I would say it's a sign that the Green New Deal is a success already. Yeah, definitely, because it has forced Republicans to actually decide to come up with something. How hard has it been to get them to even acknowledge that it's real, that man contributes at all? And so now they're working hard to find something that on the heels of their freak out from uh, the past few weeks since the Green New Deal was introduced. What is this Green New Deal? Answer, radical environmental socialism. One of the most dangerous, impractical, misguided, economically guaranteed to be devastating plans ever eliminate cows, cars, airplanes. They want to take away your car, taking away your airplane flights. Outlaw plane travel, we outlaw gasoline, we outlaw cars. Livestock will be banned. Say goodbye to dairy, to beef, Americans' favorites like cheeseburgers and a milkshake. We're going to ban hamburgers and Americans (laughs) are never going to have a barbecue. No more steak. I guess government forced veganism. When none of us are able to turn on the heat or turn on the air conditioning. They want to rebuild your home. They want to take away your hamburgers. This is what Stalin dreamt about (laughs) but never achieved. (laughs) Crazy. So that's just part of the right-wing freakout. We had to edit that down from uh, really a lot of stuff. Uh, So The Onion also shared a few thoughts on what they said is in the Green New Deal. Mind you, this is a satirical uh, news outlet for those who don't know The Onion. They note that the uh, Green New Deal, some of its most significant policy items include a 10-year plan to phase out all baby boomers. (laughs) That's not a bad idea. Uh, World War II-style mobilization to invade, occupy, and overthrow the sun. Well, it's, you know, good for defense contract. That might not be a bad idea. Force oil companies to pay more than usual to control the outcome of the 2020 elections. Well, see, that could be. Uh, Mandatory confiscation of all firearms. I don't know why that's just thrown in there. Plans to make water drinkable and non-toxic all over the U.S., not just in the wealthy parts. (laughs) Oh, man. Parents will only be allowed one regular child and one clean-burning child. I think that's smart. I think that's a good idea. Uh, this would uh, There would be a ban on kites to increase the supply of farmable wind. That's only just that smart. Uh, and uh, then they add, does it even matter? You've already decided how you feel about it. Mm. Thank you, Onion. And thank you, Desi Doyen, our producer. Also, my thanks to my guest today, Susan Harley of Public Citizen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope you enjoyed it. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com and share it with everyone you know. Drive them crazy. While you're there, please uh, consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only ones who do that. Thank you. Uh, drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. See you there. And we'll see you right here on the Bradcast tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.